0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Book Faces Live, the show where we talk the faces behind your books. I'm Nathan Van Koops, and I'm your host, and today I am thrilled to be bringing you a special interview with author Libby Hawker. Um, Libby, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, it's good to be here.
0: Um, I've been you know, thrilled to chat with you for a variety of reasons. I, I have read your Take Off Your Pants book and it has uh, saved me mid manuscript at one point um i was right in the middle of a, a draft and on a third book and just had to just stop what i was doing go back and reread your book once so um, i <laughs> well i
1: thought it was helpful that's good <laughs>
0: i owe you a debt of gratitude but um <clears throat> i wanted to chat with uh, you have just had a, an amazing recent tremendous success with your uh new novel the ragged edge of night and Number one Amazon bestseller, you top 10 most read, read authors on Amazon. Um, how are you feeling right now? Uh,
1: Pretty stoked. It's It's been a great couple of weeks. It's, uh, yeah, uh, kind of a wild ride, but really fun, and I'm really excited, and uh, it only took me 34 novels to break out, so <laughs> <laughs> I finally got that, there.
0: <laughs> that uh, overnight success that was, yeah. you know, decades in the making, yeah, yeah um, so, can you tell people a little? I know. Understand, Ragged Edge of Night is a um, historical fiction set in World War II. Is that correct? Can you tell yeah. people a little bit about the book?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a little bit unusual among World War II fiction in that it's set uh, in Germany, and all the main characters are German citizens. They're mm. not the people who are personally being persecuted by the Nazis, um, but they're members of a resistance who are trying to do whatever they can to kind of stop the march of insanity that's taken over their country. Um, and what I really love about that book. It was difficult to research, but um, I kind of kept pushing through it, because it's actually based on a true story from my family, and it's about uh, my husband's grandfather, Uh, he was originally a Franciscan friar, and then the order was disbanded by the Nazis, and he Mm. ended up becoming a music teacher in this tiny, tiny little village in Bavaria, and he got involved with a plot to assassinate Hitler, so (laughs) that's what it's about. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite a path. That's
0: that's Um, intense family history.
1: Yeah, it's very intense, and um, it was just really fascinating to research, and and difficult, too, obviously. I mean, no one likes to spend months just sort of Mm. mentally hanging out in Nazi Germany. It's pretty much the worst Mm. place you can be, (laughs) but... uh, But uh, quite an experience writing something from our family's history and turning it into a novel. And I'm so thrilled to see that it's taken off and is doing so well with readers. So it's been cool.
0: Yeah, I saw the reviews have just been pouring in for it, and they're all um, tremendously positive. So it must feel, feel really good to see those just rolling in day after day.
1: Yeah, I'm really happy to see that so many readers are enjoying this book and, and taking something from it. In some cases, a lot of people are finding like some personal meaning in it, which is really cool. You know, mm-hmm. I just I write books to be enjoyed, um, but it's a real bonus if someone says this book changed my life or something. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing and meaningful. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: How has this um, this particular book affected your family? Since it is something that's connected to your family, have they felt a little bit more of an attachment to this one?
1: Oh, yeah. My family's been so excited just on pins and needles waiting for this book to come out. I, I originally sold the premise to my publisher way back in January of 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I finished writing it in August of that year. And then we've just been waiting this for, you know, an entire year for it to come out. So everyone's been like, oh, it's finally here. And <laughs> yeah. So far, they've all liked it. So that's good. They feel I, I did justice to, to uh, Opa's story. So that makes me
0: happy. <laughs> yeah, it's got to feel really good. Um, and we should mention for, for viewers or listeners, if you're check, checking out the podcast later, um, that The Ragged Edge of Night is a September uh, first reads deal. Yeah. Um, so people can, if you're, is it just for Prime members? Is that how that works?
1: If you have Amazon Prime, you can get it for free. Um, and mm-hmm. I, then I believe everybody else can buy the Kindle edition for $1.99 for the month of September. Um, and then it goes up to full price in October. And and the print and audiobook versions will be available in October too.
0: So, mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. it's a fantastic promotion and obviously it's a wonderful start for for the book and, uh, and I, being you know in the top ten most read authors on Amazon right now that that must feel amazing
1: it was it was pretty amazing it was great there was one day there for a brief window of time during one day when both of my pen names were number one and number two most read and I was like ah, this <laughs> <pen> has- <laughs> so I took screenshots I was like, oh ah, yeah number one and number two <laughs> frame
0: that screenshot in the wall yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, a good <laughs> that's really cool. So I, I know that you're um, a hybrid author. You do a combination of independent publishing and also you uh, have traditional deals like this one. Um, what was the the story like behind getting into the First Reads program? Is that something in particular that you were angling for, or what, what's that process like?
1: Um, I was certainly hoping for it, but there's not really a way to angle for it as mm-hmm. an author, or I assume. I don't have an agent, but I assume that agented authors don't really have much of a way to angle for it either. It's pretty much up to the choice of um, the editors within Amazon Publishing who choose, you know, kind of the five or six strongest titles from their imprints for that month mm-hmm. and put those into the promotion. Um, so I was super stoked that they picked it. Um, it. Yeah, it was really exciting when they when they emailed me and they were like, "Hey, if you want to be in First Reads, you can do it. Just sign this con. I was like, "Are you kidding?" Are you <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs>
0: Can't sign um, it fast enough.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're like, I don't know if you want to do this, but it's an option. I was like, yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and is that um, a program that's only available to Amazon imprints?
1: At this time, it is. I don't know hmm. if there, there are plans to change that in the future, um, mm-hmm. but right now, currently, yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You've, I, I, I heard you mention um, previously as well that, that you've chosen to go the route, while you do traditional publishing deal, you do it without an agent. Um, yes. What has that road been like for you? I love it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I do, I love it. In fact, as you mentioned at the beginning of the of the show here, um I also do occasionally write some nonfiction books for other writers mm-hmm. and I've kind of been kicking around the idea of doing um, a non-fiction book for writers about working without an agent and, and mm. maintaining a career without the assistance of an agent. I'm not sure if it's something that readers would really be interested in though, um, so if you are an author listening to this uh, or an aspiring author, uh, shoot me an email or something and let me know if it's something you would be interested in doing because I'm not going to put the work in unless it's actually going <laughs> to sell up copies. Yeah, it's um, always good to do yeah, a little I, market
0: research first. <laughs>
1: But yeah, I do, uh, I I work without an agent. I did, I have had two agents in the past and worked with them for about two years and didn't end up being a fruitful partnership in either case. And Mm. so I just struck out on my own. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it myself. Uh, And I've loved it. I've really enjoyed it. Um, But I'm a very hands-on person. I like getting lay in and like Mm. digging through my contracts and working with my lawyer and figuring out, you know, how we can negotiate contracts and stuff. Like, that's something that energizes me. Mm. Um, So... For a person like me who who feels confident in handling those types of interactions, it's a great option. I mean, I make fifteen percent more money because <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm not getting <laughs> cut to an agent, so that's good.
0: Do you have any so until the book comes out, uh, which I hope you're I'm interested. You put me down as interested. Um, until the the book comes out, do you have any tips for people who are looking to uh, try this without an agent? In ways to protect themselves, per- perhaps how to you know find a good lawyer, things like that. What are some uh, pitfalls you might want to look out for?
1: Yeah, I I would say, uh, number one, plan to take things in slow steps. You know, Mm -hmm. plan to build your career a little piece at a time. Um, obviously, if you're not working with an agent, you don't have the option of like driving a wedge into like a big five publisher and getting a huge breakout deal and like a ton of promotion behind you. Mm -hmm. You can still get those things eventually, but you have to kind of build that ramp up to that level one brick at a time. So you need to start, you know, kind of slow and small, have reasonable expectations at first and just keep building on what you've built before, like a little at a time and a little at a time, and eventually you're up at the same level where everybody else is who's got an agent, and there's no real difference between you. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely recommend using a contracts attorney, particularly one who has some familiarity with either publishing or uh, some other version of of entertainment, like an entertainment lawyer, basically. Uh, yeah, they, they can look over your contracts in real great detail. They know what the tricky language is in there that might catch you, and they can alert you to it and be like, hey, this clause might mean this. You might want to get that stricken out. Um, mm-hmm. Here's how I would write a strikeout for that. Take it as you will. So you can kind of take their advice and apply it on your own behalf. Um, but I definitely recommend hiring a contracts attorney with experience in publishing if you can find one. If not, experience in entertainment somewhere. That's that's your mm-hmm your top choice for, for a lawyer.
0: <laughs> and did you find yours by reaching out to other authors who were in a similar situation or what was that process it's, like? Yeah. That's
1: exactly what I did. I just contacted other author friends and I was like, hey, do you have a contracts attorney you can recommend? And eventually I ended up with a good one and he was a big help and everything's been groovy ever since. So yeah.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing network of authors out there if you just, you know, put the feelers out and ask for a little bit of help. It's amazing the knowledge that's that's floating around for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. I really love that about the, the indie and the hybrid community. Everyone's really willing to pitch in and help each other mm-hmm. out, which is nice.
0: Mm-hmm. So I know you've mentioned in the past that you're, you're primarily independent for... Uh, you have a lot of books, obviously. You said over 30 over thirty books. Um, yeah. What are some of the factors that you consider when deciding whether to take a particular project through a traditional route or to publish it yourself?
1: Yeah, great question. Um First and foremost, the the main consideration for me is whether the book is going to be one in a series or has series potential. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to keep my series books for myself. I think they're much more lucrative than most publishers understand, and I have found that even the best publishers, I love my publisher to death, um, and they're one of the few I would ever consider working with, maybe the only one I would ever work with at this point, but they don't necessarily do so great with the series books they've had. They're not... Earning as much profit from those titles as they could mm-hmm. and it's it's easier um, to handle a series to maximum effect if you maintain all the copyrights to that to all the books in that series um, so that's my first consideration if it's going to be a series I'm not selling it to a publisher <laughs> keeping my claws in that one
0: yeah
1: um, and standalones I like to sell to my publisher because standalones are sometimes difficult to sell as an indie at least within my genres which is historical and literary fiction Um, A publisher is better set up to push those, you know, in the the present climate, in the the scenario we have right now as booksellers, um, Mm -hmm. publishers are a little bit better with standalones. So I try to get my publisher to take all the standalones I'm writing. They don't take them all, of course. They pretty much buy just one book a year from me. So anything else, I do eventually end up self-publishing. But that's always my first route, is to, you know, shoot my editor an email and be like, hey, I've got this standalone book I'm going to write. Let me send you a proposal. Tell me what you think. So... Yeah. It's always my first, yeah,
0: my go-to. And of course, you know, if you're writing quickly, I can understand that you said that you've pitched the idea for The Ragged Edge of Night years ago, um, so sometimes the pacing, does the pacing factor in as far as how fast you can write versus how fast they can publish your stuff?
1: Um, not really, but I've always hmm. been a pretty fast writer. I typically, it takes me like six to eight weeks to finish a book, and then it goes through edits after that, so I'm typically completing books from start to to publishing. Um, in the case of my self-published books, in about four months, and that's most of that time is getting it into an editor's schedule and getting through the edits process with them. Um, but just because a publisher handles so many other books, I mean, they've got they've got tons of books on their plate at any given time. It's a much longer time frame uh, when you're working with a traditional publisher. So, like, I finished *The Ragged Edge of Night*. Um, in August of 2017, and it didn't come out until September, October of 2018. And my publisher, Lake Union, is considered lightning fast in publishing. Okay. Like, usually, it takes 18 to 24 months to get a book through a production schedule with most publishers. Um, and in this case, it's a year. So, um, yeah, that's it, it's a little bit slower with a publisher, but but you know, there's nothing you can do about that. They've got overhead. They've got a jillion other books they have to handle. So mm-hmm. you know. the territory,
0: and I think that makes sense with with your series concept too, because it it seems like a traditional publisher has a a sort of short window of opportunity to make a book a success, and then after that they're moved on to the next thing. Whereas, like you said, if you're dealing with a series, maybe have a more long-term plan or marketing plan or strategy. That uh, is that have you found that to be the case?
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. And and again, Lake Union and the other Amazon imprints, they they have a very non traditional approach um, compared to other traditional publishers, where they will continue to promote books hmm. indefinitely. I guess as long as long as they continue to perform fairly well, they'll keep pushing them. So like I, the very first book they ever published was um, one I self published first, and they picked up later, which is called Tidewater, and that was they picked it up in 2015. Um, and they're still promoting it, which is great. So it's it's been three years, and that book still gets you know a little shove now and again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think I feel like indies are are quicker on their feet with promotions and can take advantage of kind of the changing landscape, as, as mm-hmm. more outlets for promotions come up, or as um, you know the most effective trends within the promotion world change, indies can take advantage of that much, much faster than traditional publishers can. That's why I like being a hybrid so much, it's why I will personally never give up self-publishing, it's just, it, it keeps you relevant uh, nowadays, it allows you to just keep your name in front of readers, mm-hmm. regardless of what the publisher's doing, so I think yeah. that's really valuable. It's not something I would ever be willing to give up.
0: You mentioned that you've used a couple of different rights, you, or routes rather, to um, get your books into traditional deals. For example, you said that you've pitched them in advance um, to publishers, but then you have also independently published them and then had them get picked up from publishers. Um, what, what, what's the variation in how that has worked out for you? Is that something that you have actively looked for after self-publishing a series and say, okay, well, maybe I'll turn around and turn this in? Or was that something they approached you on?
1: Um, so the first book that I sold to Lake Union, they approached me on, uh, and I was happy to, to sell it to them, because um, it was a standalone. <laughs> I was okay. like, please take my standalone book. Yeah. Uh, after that, every book I've sold to them has been one I've sold on a proposal, um, but we have sort of kicked around the idea of them potentially picking up some of my previously, some of my older indie books that are standalone, so that's kind of an open possibility, um, but I'm also a little hesitant on that. I, I, I wouldn't say no to it necessarily right off, right off the bat, but I find it so lucrative to maintain as many of my own copyrights as I can that I'm also not eager to give up books I've already self-published. Right. So, like, I've got a foot in the door there now, and I was willing to, you know, sell a copyright on one of my books to get that foot in the door, mm-hmm. but my preference now is to pitch them books I haven't written yet, and then if they take them, great, I'm going to write them. If they don't take them, it goes on a back burner, and I'm going to self-publish that idea someday in the future. <laughs> so yeah. that's
0: kind of how I
1: operate now. Seems
0: like the most beneficial to you, and you know, have your best interest at heart. I mean, you're you're the one who's going to treat your books the best, obviously. Um, was there a particular benchmark, do you think, that you hit with your overall platform or your career where you you found yourself becoming more, I mean, obviously now agents are probably coming out of the woodwork for your stuff, but um, when like Union first approached you, for example, do you feel like you would hit a particular milestone with your career where that suddenly you were um, more attractive to traditional publishers?
1: Um, With the Ragged Edge of Night coming out and hitting number one on Amazon, that Mm. definitely kind of opened a floodgate all of a sudden over the last couple of weeks. I've had a few agents approach me Um, I have had uh, some publishers in some other territories approach me about selling foreign rights to that Mm. book. Um, And I've also had um, some interesting contacts from people regarding some subsidiary rights to my self-published stuff, too. So Mm. they've kind of poked their heads out of the holding, like, hey, I noticed you haven't (laughs) sold audio rights on that book. (laughs) Maybe you want to sell this to us? I'm like, yes, I do. (laughs) So that has definitely opened a door um, for sure hitting number one on Amazon um, made a, a pretty rapid change. I mean, I, I've i been self-publishing for several years now, and I can already feel there's kind of a difference in the way my career is chugging along compared to where it was before. I mean, before it was great, I was mm-hmm. still making a full-time living and a very secure living off of, you know, what I was doing before with this hybrid stuff. Um, but there's there's just a, a noticeable shift in things now where suddenly there's all this interest <laughs> that yeah. wasn't there before.
0: So. A little extra momentum behind things yeah. and other... Uh. Big credit that number one in the store credit. I'm sure you know feels pretty good. It looks pretty good on the pitch.
1: Yeah, looks pretty good, and it definitely drew some eyes. So that's good. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, one of our viewers, Doug, says I'm watching this with my pants on. Uh, so um, yeah, anyone else who is, is watching uh, live, feel free to comment, leave your questions, or if you are uh, watching the replay later, definitely pop on and, and leave your comments and questions, so we can always, we can uh, try to get to those later on as well. But uh, I do want to shift gears a little bit to talk about your book, Take Off Your Pants. Um, this, like I said early on, this, this book was very effective for me. It was something that I have turned around and recommended to multiple writer friends uh, since reading it. And um, I think I even got it in paperback and in e ebook, so I have both versions, just in case. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, what inspired you to write Take Off Your Pants?
1: Um, I had a a lot of friends who were also authors at at various states in their career, either they were, you know, just looking at writing their first book, or they'd written a bunch of books already, um, and they were kind of shocked by how quickly I could get through books, mm-hmm. and I think maybe at first a few of those people thought, well, her books probably aren't that good if, if she's writing them really fast, like, eh, she's cranking them out, she's probably kind of a hack, whatever. But then, um, then I sold Tidewater to Lake Union, and I think that caught some attention from a few people, and they were like, oh, wait, maybe if a publisher's willing to pay for this already self-published book, maybe there's something to her method. So at that point, after I sold Tidewater, I started getting a lot of emails from friends who were saying hey, can you just, like, tell me how you write a book so fast? What is going on here? It's really weird that you can, like, write a giant novel. Like, Tidewater's 160,000 words, and I wrote that book in, like, two months. So (laughs) how are you doing this? What's going on? (laughs) And um, I just kind of, I kept typing up the same email or, or, you know, copying and pasting the same advice over and over again, and I was like, you know, I've done this like 20 times now. If I just wrote this all up as an ebook, I bet probably some other authors would be willing to pay me three bucks for the advice, you know? Yeah. So I, did.
0: <laughs> yeah. So
1: I typed it up, and I put a clever title on it, and I self-published it, and the rest is history. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. And That's I, for, for people who aren't familiar yeah, I'm sure most people watching are kind of familiar with the idea of pantsing versus plotting and um, you know outlining versus writing by the seat of your pants. And, um, apology for the background, my yard guy is leaf blowing my backyard right now. <laughs> um, that's, there's always some surprises somewhere through this episode. But, um, but yeah, so the, I found a lot, I know you use John Truby's, um, anatomy of a story uh, as a a sort of a a basic framework, and there were some other um, references that I went on and and read afterwards, Um, but I I thought that you did an excellent job of distilling so much information down to a a more manageable uh, format for authors, so I I think that you did an excellent job in streamlining it. Um, Well, thank
1: you, yeah, that was really my goal was to was to streamline a lot of information I found useful and to make it as compact as possible. <laughs> mm. So yeah, it's because it's a lot. John Truby's book is like really long and rambling and it's full of great advice, but yeah. sometimes I was like, oh my God, I don't need the same example five different times.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, because it's like you can go and read, you know, Hero's Journey and all these other books, but it's when you're in the middle of a book and you're stuck and you're trying to figure out how to solve your problems, like you just want sort of the... Quick version. You want to be like, all right, what is my problem, and how do I identify it? How do I fix it? And like I I said, I applied yours right in the middle of manuscript. I'd already read it once. I stopped two thirds of the way through a book, and then just reread your book um, just to to puzzle my way through issues. Um,
1: (laughs) I'm glad it was useful that way. That's exactly what I wanted to do with it. So, yay!
0: (laughs) One of the uh, craft tips you have in there um, was the idea of a symbol crash. Could you talk about that for for authors?
1: yeah that's that's my own little my my own particular spin I put on all these ideas that I distilled into the books and it's it's just a little trick I do um with every major scene or every chapter and that's that I, I never just let the end of a scene or a chapter just kind of peter out and to mm-hmm. be like and then they got in the car and drove away you know like yeah. it, I'm never going to leave a scene or a chapter on a boring tone or even just like a neutral tone I want to put one little thing in the end, even if it's just a sentence, even if it's just the way if, if it's just the way I structure that paragraph where I put a little line break to just make you go, ooh, and sit up and take notice. I just put yeah. something at the end of every scene and chapter that just kind of hooks you a little bit and makes you go, Ah <laughs>
0: <I have laughs> going. Gotta turn the next page. Can't go to bed yet.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that was a big revelation to me actually because um, once I had read that I sort of I started writing the last sentence of my scenes first. Mm-hmm. And then riding my way to it, which was a great way for me to be like, oh, I'm done with this scene. I hit my I hit symbol crash, as you put it. Yeah. And that it, was... It
1: crash, you know you got it. <laughs> that was
0: a revelation for me. And I said, okay. And then I've gone on to sort of become more and more of a more detailed, you know, beats writer and things like that. Things that I never thought I could do all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of eased myself into... The outlining process, but um, that was one of the things that that definitely stuck with me, and I've used ever since. So, good, good. Thank you. I'm giving you partial credit for any future success I have. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs>
0: um, you said you had um, so the idea for another nonfiction book. Do you have other nonfiction books out besides Take Off Your Pants?
1: I do. I have one that's really short. It's just a 99-cent book, and it's about um, writing pitches, so whether you think of that as like a pitch to an agent or an editor, or just as the, the blurb for your book that's going to go up on Amazon, it's mm-hmm. about structuring a, a, a pitch that really grabs a reader and pulls them in. Um, and then I have one called Making It in Historical Fiction, which I wrote specifically for people who are trying to, to make it happen in my genre. Um, and that's been really gratifying because quite a few people who are who are trying to you know break out in historical fiction have written to me and told me that they found that book really useful, which I think is so cool because I knew it would have a fairly small audience, like historical fiction isn't a huge pool, um, um but it was nice. It was really nice to hear that it that it did its job. And then, um, I'm coming out with another one shortly. It depends how fast we can get through edits on it. but this is one um, called it, it's called uh, a cinch by the Inch. And it's specifically for people who are looking at writing their very first book ever and are very intimidated by the process.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> so it's yeah. kind of it's it's created specifically to sort of help pull people into it and get them over some of their biggest fears and just get them writing, um, which I've noticed is another thing that um, a lot of my friends who want to write get really hung up on. They're, they're afraid they can't do it. They're afraid of all these things that they don't really need to be afraid of. So I took that book and put my own advice on how to get through a novel, your, your very first novel, first. And I also talked to a whole bunch of other successful authors and gathered their advice on these topics, too. And and uh, so it's full of you know advice not just from me but other authors who people will probably be familiar with, too, to kind of just help give you the push you need to just do it. So Yeah, it's amazing.
0: I mean, I think we the highest attrition rate is, of course, right at the beginning because um, so many people are saying, oh, I want to write a novel, and the amount of people that actually get through the first draft is, of course, you know, a fraction, a small fraction of that. Um, so I think it's definitely, there's always a market for that, of I course. I so.
1: And people usually stop at that point because they've psyched themselves out. Like, it's mm-hmm. usually something stopping them that doesn't really need to be stopping them. It's just a psychological block, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges to uh, writing yes. historical fiction, um, specifically in any of the the ways that you've, made, any tips for anyone starting out in historical fiction and how to find success?
1: Sure. Um, the biggest, I think the biggest challenge with writing historical fiction is all the research, you know, you need to put into it. <laughs> mm. um, obviously a big part of historical fiction is the history and readers come to these books because they want to have an experience of kind of living in that historical time period to some degree or another. And, and I think there's a pretty wide spectrum of what readers are looking for, whether they want like really intense immersion into the setting or something a little less intense. So there's room for a wide variety of authors and readers within that. But definitely the biggest challenge for a writer is that research section that you have to do because it's so easy to get bogged down in it and to just to tell yourself that you have to keep researching every single little detail of your setting to the point where you never get me writing done. <laughs>
0: mm, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of rabbit holes there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it's, you know, especially if you love history, it's very distracting. You're like, oh, I'm just going to keep reading about the history of mothballs, which is something I literally had to research once for, once for one of my books. Um,
0: yeah.
1: But yes, yeah, it can be distracting and, and it can be a time waster. So my biggest, uh, my biggest piece of advice that I give out in how to in making it in historical fiction and just when I talk to writers one-on-one is you have to research just enough so that you can see your story clearly. So, like, once you can visualize the structure of your story from start to finish, you stop researching at that point. Then you write, and then as you're actually, like, beefing up your beats and turning them into scenes and chapters, mm-hmm. then you can go back to a little bit of research here and there. So, like, if you're writing along and you're like, oh, what kind of boots would this character be wearing? Then you jump on Google real quick and you Google, like, Men's Boots, 1868, and you see what kind of articles you get, and then as soon as you have enough detail to fill in that sentence, you stop, mm-hmm. and you keep going with your yeah. writing. <laughs> you have to just, like, put the brakes on. You have to know when to pump those brakes.
0: I've fallen into that trap myself. I can definitely relate. I had a scene uh, that took place on the Hindenburg in one of my books, and it was just fascinating research i spent i got distracted for weeks probably wandering around oh, yeah. that airship and the, the history of the people and the biographies and it, yeah. history is amazing so it's, it is a, a fantastic genre to be in just for the the stories Like mean like your your personal family story you know it's true to life but you know uh more fascinating than than fiction probably so um, one of the things i wanted to touch on too was i A, I think many of your covers are are gorgeous. You've had uh, some beautiful covers, but you've also had some really interesting titles. Um, You know, Daughter of Sand and Stone. Um, You've had some... Obviously, you're very clever with your nonfiction, take off your pants. But um, what are some things that have factored into your choices of title for your historical fiction?
1: Um, I think titles are just as important as covers, and I Hmm. think covers are the most important factor in selling a book. So that's like how highly I regard titles and how much emphasis I place on them. Um, I really think title and cover together can make or break a book and, and will determine your sales. Um, so I'm glad you like my titles.
0: Yeah,
1: I, <laughs> you know, I put a lot of thought into them. Um, I often will just kind of have an idea for a title pop into my head and I scribble it down in my little tiny title notebook. I've got one of those little Moleskine notebooks that mm-hmm. fit in your pocket and and I just scratch them in there, and then when I'm, you know, when it's time to start another book, I'll flip back through that notebook and go, oh, this title might work, this could potentially, this could, and then I will take a really great title and make it work for the book I'm trying to write. Mm. So, like, The Ragged Edge of Night, actually, the, the title came to me first, even before I knew I was going to write that book. That was one that went in my notebook, and I was just, like, vacuuming my house, and it popped into my head, and I was like, oh, I'm writing that <laughs> And then when I, when I knew I wanted to send this pitch for a World War II novel to my publisher, I was like, uh here's the basic premise, and the title is The Ragged Edge of Night, and then I attached um, a synopsis for the book, and my editor got back to me in, like, uh, two minutes, and she's like, I want this book, I'm taking it. And I was like, have you even read the synopsis yet? Because that's a pretty long synopsis. She's like, no, (laughs) but I love that title, and I know that title will sell, so I'm buying it. I was like, okay, (laughs) let's do it.
0: (laughs) That's really cool.
1: So so I really do feel strongly that titles are intensely important, and I, I don't, I think to some degree, um, how much you can get away with a simpler, less complex um, title depends on your genre. In historical and literary fiction, it's really important because it it sets the whole atmosphere for the book. And it's going to help tell the reader that this is the right kind of historical novel for them. Because like we talked Mm -hmm. about earlier, there's this spectrum of like pretty light on history, more kind of fun, and the type of book you'd read at the beach, uh, historical novel, which my book Mercer Girls is like that. It's fun. And Mercer Girls sounds like a fun title. And then yeah. you have much more intense atmospheric stuff that really needs like a, a more atmospheric packaging um, to, to bring the right type of reader in. So yeah.
0: Have you ever really struggled to find a title for a, a novel?
1: Yeah, Daughter of Sand and Stone, uh, we wrestled with that one quite a bit, and I I threw several ideas at my publisher, and we were all like, meh, about all of them, and I finally came up with that one, and I was like, we're going with it. And (laughs) My publisher was like, there's this other YA book called Daughter of Smoke and Bone. I was like, I don't care. It's a different genre. Yeah. I just can't keep thinking about this title.
0: (laughs) No, I think that sometimes people um, think, oh, well, there's something sort of similar to this as a bad thing, but then... There's actually a benefit to following certain trends. I think in in titles there as well.
1: Is. In fact, the Ragged Edge of Night just has an angry review that's like, ah, oh, this cover looks just like all the light we cannot see, and I'm like, he did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it sure does. We yeah. wink. wink.
0: <laughs> yeah, no surprise there. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to reinvent the entire wheel, right? Thanks. Um Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um. So you have a new, I thought you posted up, you have a new deal in audio as well. Tantor picked up some of your books as well.
1: Yeah, Tantor um, was another uh, surprise after I hit number one <laughs> on Amazon. They they showed up and they were like, hey, so you don't have some audio rights sold on some of your books. And I was like, I'd love to work with you, Tantor. <laughs> Let's do it. So, yeah. um, so they, they've picked up a, an Egyptian fiction trilogy I have called The Book of Coming Forth by Day. So... Um, I don't have a release date on the audiobook for that yet, but I'm really excited to hear it because I love that trilogy. I think it's mm. the best out of Egyptian stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'm really stoked to hear what they do with it. So Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's always exciting hearing your stories come to life with, with great, <laughs> great narration and um, mm. just kind of getting to relive your own words through someone else's voice. Yeah. Um, I, love
1: I love to see what narrators do with it, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. What's next for you?
1: Um, I have, a, speaking of audiobooks, I, I have a, a little partnership going on that I'm really excited about with a fairly well-known podcaster who's going to be narrating uh, my next indie release, which comes out January 1st, and it's a very long novel about Calamity Jane. Okay. And Yeah, I'm really excited. Her name's Jackie Zabrowski, if anybody knows about her from podcasting. She's been the host of quite a few uh, fairly successful podcasts. and. Um, She's a big fan of Calamity Jane, and I found that out, so I approached her and I was like, so could I ever potentially hire you to narrate an audiobook about Calamity Jane? And she was like, yes! (laughs) (laughs) So we've been working on this project, which will be really fun. Um, So I'm really excited to see how that does. It'll be interesting to see if the crossover between her fans and my fans um, brings in a new audience to my work. So I'm really excited about this, like, trying to work with people who are... In other media and doing other forms of entertainment and see if we can get some crossover into the book world so we'll see if it, if it works out I don't know
0: <laughs> it's, it's such an interesting time to for for strong female heroines and historical figures and I think it's, it's probably a, a great character to to bring back to life and my family my experience with Calamity Jane is through the musical um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm sure the uh, the real-life history has a lot more uh, depth to it but um, it sounds like a, a lot of a lot of fun this sounds like a cool project
1: yeah, I'm really excited about it. We're we're almost done with all the edits on the book, and then we're going to start the production on the audio book shortly here, and it should be done by January first. So
0: that's really exciting. Um, so if people want to keep up with you and keep track of what's coming next and, and uh, what's what's next out of your um, from from your pen and keyboard um, or for their earbuds, uh, where's the best place for them to find you?
1: Definitely the best place is my website, which is hawkerbooks.com, and it's H-A-W-K-E-R, books.com.
0: Okay, hawkerbooks.com, and the majority of your um, books are under uh, Libby Hawker, as opposed to Olivia Hawker, if you're searching yep. on Amazon? Yeah,
1: pretty much all my books at this point are under Libby Hawker, and then The Ragged Edge of Night is under a pen named Olivia Hawker, which I've got more stuff coming from Olivia in future years, so
0: okay. All right. Well, that's fantastic. Um, We've kind of reached the end of the episode here, but um, Libby, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to to come chat with us. It has been a pleasure.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.
0: All right. hope to have you on again soon.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All
0: right. See (laughs) you.